0: Attention, attention. Ladies and gentlemen, Madame and messieurs, please rise and remove your toques.
1: Goal scored by Randall Mann.
0: wise folk know that I bust out a whole variety of these little podcast programs, as not often a situation arises that could equally go along the renegade counterculture documentaries of Chugalon with Uncle Weed, or fit right alongside the Canucks hockey audio fanzine of the Canucks Outsider, or even documenting the international circus on the Olympic Outsider. Heck, even the urban Vancouver... But here comes a man who's traveled back and forth high and wide across Canada, a former minor league hockey player who now tends to his garden in Newfoundland and writes books of poetry about goalies. So prepare yourself, strap on your helmet, and get ready to step over the boards and learn about Nightwork, the Sawchuck Poems by Randall Maggs. For years I thought I was the only one that hung out at that weird little space that exists between hockey, poetry, history, and culture. The only times hockey and poetry would collide, it seemed, in my world were some kind of rhymey stuff, a little bit of magic stick that, or passing the torch on that, and then one day in the mail a little magic bundle arrived, and it was a book about the tortured soul that was Terry Sachuk. and fa- I was fascinated by this book. Not only the beautiful pages, but the words within, and it wasn't just sparse sparse words. It was storytelling and telling a chronology of this man that while everyone knew his name in Canada, no one really knew anything about him besides that he had a bunch of wins. And I was curious, who was the man that would write this book? Who took on this massive project? And I started to learn that he was a man that was from the West but ended up in Newfoundland and had gone into great depths interviewing goalies and researching this. And I could tell from the words that he was clearly a guy who had a passion for hockey but even more of a passion for the human spirit
1: and ninety-one, the
0: And now finally here at the uh the now somewhat sedate confines of the Robson Square Ring almost, uh, almost looks deserted after the chaos that was the Olympics. I have Randall Maggs here to answer my questions. Randall, thanks so much for coming out to Vancouver again. Oh, ha-
2: happy to be here. I know I'm a month late. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, the parties all packed up. It was really weird. Yeah. The day after it all ended, all the white tents that became ubiquitous in Vancouver for about a month, all packed up and everyone left. And this city was like a, a all of a sudden felt like a ghost town. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, my son was
2: here and he's told me all about
0: it. He called <laughs> me. got. He
2: managed to get some scalp tickets for the Norway game. Right? oh yeah Yeah, I didn't think he was even going to get into this but he phoned me and he said guess where I am and I said I can tell by the noise in the back. <laughs> I know exactly where you are how much did you pay for your ticket
0: <laughs> oh I can tell you it was expensive and worth every penny yeah the first thing I have to ask you of all the different characters that we grow up with in Canada and hear about: uh, How did you pull Terry out of this pile of all these personalities?
2: Yeah, well, you know, I played most of my minor hockey in Winnipeg, so that he was just he was just there with us. I played on the same rinks as Terry. When we went up into the north end of Winnipeg, into Elmvale, East Kildonan, we knew that's where he had come from, and he was at the time he was like in that first five-year period in Detroit. And setting unbelievable records, you know, uh, uh, that year 52, 1952, uh-huh. eight victories in eight playoff games. Nobody scored on him in Detroit. He allows five goals in eight games. That's the level that he was playing at in that period. There were lots of guys in Winnipeg who were great. Uh, Bathgate, there were several others. I played against Stemkowski, as a matter of fact. He was always the thorn in our side. But there was something about Terry that was just different. That name, that name, Sawchuk, it just... That said hockey to me, you know. And uh, though I got away from it for a long time, and then it just kind of worked its way back, and that's where the book came from.
0: Mm-hmm. And at some point, you were you were out on some adventure, and something came back to you where you felt uh, some inclination to dive into this and create something that obviously took years of work and years of research, plus just the heart and soul, the, you know, the gut-wrenching work that it yeah. takes to really lay those words down on paper. When did that spark happen?
2: Well, I, I had written one home using hockey as a metaphor for a completely other issue which kind of put me into that frame of mind and then I was in Saskatchewan I was doing a reading and I was moving from Allen Saskatchewan into Saskatoon and I went by these grain elevators and you know the most famous birthplace of any hockey player in the 50s uh-huh. and 60s it was floral the birthplace of Gordie Howe and it yeah. just went into my head like a shot you know and I just it just took me back into that world of my own cuz I hadn't been on the prairie in a long time either So I was just kind of reliving that whole experience. I just got immersed, and I started to think about Terry, because everybody was conscious of the fact that something had happened to Terry, that Terry had had this end, and nobody really knew what it was. And I sort of started thinking about that, and I started researching it, thinking, you know, he was in the hospital a month before people found out about it. I started thinking conspiracy, you know, but it it wasn't. I mean, it was just... uh, what happened to terry at the end was was really of his own doing and that's and he said that himself so mm-hmm.
0: And the short version is uh, is these temptations and vices of life alcohol, women, not taking care of himself, being battered on a nightly basis because he played every game, season after season after season. Yeah. And these were the days with no mask, little cotton fiber on for pads, yeah. uh, elbows to the face where regular current stitches. It was none of that was any kind of a big deal. But the medicine for that at the end of the night was sitting at a bar with a couple of whiskeys by himself. So he's a little bit of a tortured soul, to say the very least. what well,
2: well, he was. And, you know, I, I, think, I, I think his Ukrainian has played a big part in this too, because he was an extremely uh, sensitive man, extremely insecure, very thin-skinned, and it, I, I think, that, you know, the way, you know what fans are like? I mean, fans are just totally unconscious of how cruel they are. You know? <laughs> oh, yeah. I've said this before. If you took somebody from our profession and the writers or the artistic oh, no, world and you had <laughs> no 18,000 guys <laughs> screaming, your your poetry sucks, you know, you'd be, in a, you'd be in a therapy for life. These guys are expected to just take this. And it was hard for Terry. So he got really cynical about fans. He got cynical about owners. He just had a real big problem with a lot of the stuff that was going on. Plus, I mean, you know, you're facing... There's a physicist from the University of Moncton that says, Bobby Hull's shot with a wooden stick was 120 miles an hour. You're into a period here where you've got a man shooting a puck that hard at your face and you're not wearing a mask, you know. I, these guys, I'm not just talking about Sawchuck in this book. Uh-huh. I'm talking about Bauer, Plant, Hall, Worsley, as well as Sachuk. These guys revolutionized the game not only the way goal tending is, was done you know uh, uh, Hall with the butterfly and, and uh, uh, Plant coming out and playing the puck and driving, driving Toe Blake out of his absolute <laughs> mind when yep. he was doing that right you know uh, uh, and Terry was the first great angle goalie I mean but he's taken he's taken these shots to the body with no proper gear
0: something burning in Chicago they came in waves then Hull and Makita Mackie and Moans with a heavy shot of his own, bulking Esposito, Speedy warum, then hull again, Billy Ray back and forth behind Chicago's bench, jabbing a guy in the back to go. But he couldn't take his eyes off Sawchuck's mask, the way it swung deliberately from side to side. What did it remind him of? Something seen? In a dream? Or on TV? What was going on behind the mask? How could you know? The injured arm seemed fine, the self absorbed sweeping, after he'd slowly pushed himself to his feet, the lazy arc of blade from post to post. Billy hadn't seen that in a while. It made him feel uneasy. The heavy traffic didn't seem to face Terry either, flail Hull flailing with his elbow to the mask. Again and again the Hawks came on like a storm at sea on a sightless night. The only hope was to feel what was coming face it straight on. Thirty seven blocks, thirty seven shots he blocks in the forty minutes he plays after Bauer goes down. The wildest time when Stemkowski do- goes for tripping at 4.23, then again at 10.13 in the third, and punch explodes! His hat hat, hat half-knocked off, climbing up over his players to curse the referee for a homer. Stemkowski, who put the Leafs ahead by one and watched and waited and caught Pilot in the corner, pounding him senseless, Stemmer, the only one who dared to imitate Sachuk's shambling gait, dragging his knuckles over the dressing room floor. Ukrainian-born, too. Like Terry, in Winnipeg, the one teammate Sawchuck sought out. Why don't you stay downtown, he'd say. We'll go for a beer at the Isabel after the game. Bring in your shaving kit. The last guy Terry would leave dangling out on a limb. Five on four, the Hawks set up their points, moving the puck from corner to corner, looking to find the open man. Four minutes shorthanded, it seemed like forever. One shot after another, Terry took to the body, letting the puck safely land in his feet, then dropping to cover it up. "'Nervously, the home crowd eyed the clock. "'The hats dipped in bitter disappointment "'then turned to one another for assurance. "'The Hawks were a scoring machine, "'but how many times had they let their big ones get away? "'All game, Hull had been shooting up around Sawchuck's head, "'wanting him back on his heels and deep in his crease. "'Bobby thought it was funny giving people a whack "'with the puck in practice just for a joke. "'He'd bounce a shot off the seats near the women "'sweeping out the aisles.' But this was different. This was a battle over the angles, a deadly geometry, one or two degrees that would make the difference. A goal was all Chicago needed to tie the game and open the gates.
2: Not just that. They didn't just change goaltending. They changed the way guys tried to score because they were so good what was coming in the slap shot was coming in at the time yeah. my brother was with Chicago and he said you know that that's when the boys were heating up their sticks and bending them under the dressing room door I mean Bobby's shot was harder than Dennis's but when Dennis shot the puck everybody got out of the way because nobody knew where nobody it was going Tony Esposito wouldn't, wouldn't stay in the net when that was going yeah. on remember that great line he had with go, go see if Mrs., uh, Mrs. DeGiordi raised a fool you know I mean Dennis <laughs> DeGiordi's mother because Dennis was the other goalie on that team So they
0: changed the game entirely as far as I'm concerned, but they paid an awful price in doing that. So while Terry was setting records and racking up wins, uh, you know, off the ice, he was he was a bit of a tragic figure. And without the media onslaught, there was the sports reporters talking about the stats and what he did and whether he was great or whether he was lousy. And that changed day to day to day, as as we even know here in Vancouver, where Roberto Roberto Luongo Luongo wins a gold medal. And a week later, I come back from Toronto and people like, oh, geez, Luongo, he's the weak part of the Canucks now. did,
2: Did you see what they're saying about the Capitals? The, they booed the Washington people. Booed the Capitals. They're what forty-one and four or something like that, and they booed them when they went off the ice. What are we talking here? You know, I mean unbelievable
0: but yet these guys would go off the go off the ice and go off to their private lives whatever they were and have a really hard time handling those things and the and the expectations you know this was early days or before the players union the owners and the general manager held all the cards these guys didn't really have any control and there were also guys who grew up in a, you know, oftentimes in, uh, in small towns, really had limited education, Didn't all they knew was hockey, and there was really no support off the ice. So it seems to me that in some ways Terry was a little bit of a tragic figure, and you alluded to this a little bit in your reading tonight. You know, we talked about Beowulf or reading the, the Iliad, and there's a little something about a Greek tragedy in Terry Slachuk's life, it seems. Yeah,
2: well, you know, the cover. I, 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 a couple of people have sort of questioned the use of, of, of putting him on the cover in Toronto Sweater that this was a, a marketing decision. I, I made that decision, and it was essentially because that is the picture of the tragic hero as far as, as i 'm concerned. You see his size and you see the head down, and you see the whole burden that he 's carrying there. You know I mean the other reason I put it on was because I think he played his greatest games. Uh, he played the greatest game a goaltender ever played, Game 5. You want to talk about your iconic hockey games? Game 5 in the semifinals against Chicago the last year that Toronto won the Stanley Cup. That's partly why it was there, you know. But uh, it's just a it, it, tragic story. Ab- absolutely right, you know. It's just uh, it's an unbelievable story. Guy's living a great Canadian dream. He's miserable from the start.
0: No country for old men. 1. I'd like to leave hockey like that, in a good style. Someone read his lips and wrote it down. Bedlam drowned the words themselves, an uproar after the miracle. Jubilation, the clatter of sticks flung down on the dressing room floor like crutches in a pile. Hair stuck tape and plaster peeled away. Down to the raw gap-tooth wrapped in towels, the shouts and candor of the showers, though each of the leaves had stopped to speak a word or two to Terry, each taking in the open flap of an undershirt, the old man's bones like a washboard. Where the devil does he find it? the seeming fleshless legs without their pads. Half undressed, he slumps. Two, half undressed, he slumps against the wall. No one says a word about the cigarette in his hand. He'd drink a 7-Up, but can't get up and wouldn't ask. A fog billows out of the showers. Bare fl- feet flap the marshy floor. Cautiously, the press guys squeeze between the massive flanks and watch their backs. A snapping towel could tear your ear, or worse, take the arse right out of your suit. A little get, uh, a little getting even masked is a joke. A leaf or two has slipped away and the older guys are quieter now, more thoughtful, nodding ties. One by one, they sense a deepening silence in the room and turn to look where Terry's resting, panting, having wrestled off his sodden shirt. Their eyes tell them armloads of plums, say the peacock's plumage. Their fingers pause in intricate tasks. Jesus, Yuki, someone breaks the silence. The whole room gapes at the hammered chest and belly. Easy to count the darker nine or ten from Hull. They can't even look at the shoulder, but watch as he peels off at the infamous underwear and heads without a word towards the showers. These were guys who'd paid their dues, who'd seen it all, but this was a moment that got their attention, seeing what they'd asked of them that night. 3. Funny how a mirror only messed you up, or even trying to think it through. Just let your fingers tie the tie. Good way to play the game itself. They would have said it in those days. Gingerly, they bent to reach their shoes, feeling bumps and bruises of their own. Maybe what the papers said was so. Maybe it wasn't a game for old men. But Jesus, that was just made the winning sweeter. One to go against the Hawks than the last great battle of, the go- of a golden age, they'd read. Few here had a philosophical bent, but those, but these were thoughtful times, the country taking its pulse and all. A world's fair, a nation's riots where they'd meet an ancient enemy in Montreal. The players timed it so they left the dressing room alone. Their day might be nearly done, but they knew things wouldn't be so bitter if they walked away a winner. Each risked a glance behind, then closed the door. Sometimes you didn't really like the guy. He pissed you off. He wouldn't talk and in and warm-up, stepped away from shots he didn't want. But this was war, and all of that meant squat. You gave your goalie room. They'd got their look at what he paid for what he did. Besides, they knew they weren't going anywhere without him. Now, there's, you interviewed a whole bunch of other goalies to kind of get a little background, a little bit of insight into Terry's life. Yeah. What were some of the things that really stuck with you from talking about these other goalies, both from past and present day?
2: Oh, it was great. I mean, Dryden was very supportive. Dryden was the one that suggested that I go to the uh, uh, National Research Center, you know. But 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 Ken is a very, very perceptive, very thoughtful, very intelligent guy. I know his favorite poem is One of You because he did an interview uh, with... Le- uh, with uh, CBC Gander and the interviewer there asked him he knows about the book uh, Glenn Hall was great uh, Glenn was the one that told me uh, mentioned to me uh, we, I th- want to talk to him about Jack Adams you know uh-huh. he, he was the guy that said uh, if you want to find anybody got anything good to say about Jack Adams tell him to give me a call so these guys were all helpful Worsley My God, Worsley was wonderful. I I knew Worsley from the days when he was, not knew him, but knew of him, when he was Vancouver's goalie in 1952. I ran into him in a drugstore here. And in the first game, NHL game I saw, he was playing goal for the New York Rangers in Montreal. But I called him up one day and told him about this book I was writing, and it was about all the, I said it was a book of poems, and it was about all you guys, and I listed them off, and I mentioned Plant and he said, you're gonna have you're gonna have a hell of a time talking to Plon, of <laughs> course, because he had died young yeah. as, as well, you know. But they were all great. Johnny Bauer was maybe the one that talked to me the most and, and the longest. And uh, Johnny's a phenomenon, just a gentleman and just a fine person. And for some reason, was able to handle the pressures of playing goal without it getting to him. At least that's what, that's my my sense of him, you know. In, in comparison to everybody else, they all had their they all
0: had their neurotic twitches. He seems to have been totally. Totally normal person. One of you. Catchers in baseball, closest to cousins, in your differentness, the safeguarding home, the healing bones, the serious gear, which ought to indicate the possibilities, and only one of you. Denied the leap and dash up the ice, what goalies know is side to side is in awkwardness of monk and cell. They scrape, they sweep, their eyes are elsewhere as they contemplate their narrow place. Like saints, they pray for nothing which brings grace. Off days, what they want is space. They sit apart in bars. They know the length of streets in twenty circles. But it's their saving sense of irony that further isolates them as it saves. Percy H. Lissier, for one, in a fitful sleep, flinching at rising shots in a bad light, rubbers flung out of crowd insults in two languages, finally got out of bed in a moment of bleak insight, went down and burnt a motto onto his stick. This is the hand that turns away the blow. Or Lorne Chabot in 1928 when someone asked him why he always took the trouble to shave before a game, angled out a leg to check a strap and answered in a quiet voice, I stitch better when my skin is smooth. Or dappy dapper Charlie Rayner who stopped a bullet with his chin, another couple of teeth and some hasty work to close an ugly cut. Back the next night he takes another, full in the face, A second night in a row he's down, spitting bits of tooth to the ice. It's a wonder, he murmurs, why somebody doesn't get hurt in this game. Well, I was in Toronto recently, and I had a chance to, uh, before a flight, I had an hour to spare. I had my backpack right by my hotel room door. I was staying a block and a half from the Hockey Hall of Fame, and I was like, I can't leave Toronto without seeing this. And so I scamper around the Hockey Hall of Fame, and of course I could spend three weeks in there, but I had an hour. And one of the things that I noticed was there was the display of uh, Rocket Richard and the display of Terry Sawchuck, and they're right next to each other. Yeah. And in Rocket Richard's uh, display, there's a painting so there's a bunch of ephemera from you know ephemeral objects from games puck sticks jerseys, that kind of stuff but there's also a painting and i said wow it seems like in the terry Sawchuk one there should be a little work of art in there in the terry Sawchuk wow. display as well like say for example a book of poetry
2: well i should mention that to the boys i mean those those guys are my friends you know the the guys with the white gloves that bring the standing cup yeah, out yeah. Of the, the guys
0: the, with the coolest job in yeah, the world yeah yeah yeah
2: <laughs> they're not porters i mean yeah. phil pritchard is the vice president of the hall and and, and uh, uh, the other guy is the, is the uh, head of the resource center now. These guys are my, Craig, Craig uh, the name just slips my mind here. Uh, these guys are my buddies. I mean, they, they were so supportive of me. Phil got hold of the, uh, the autopsy, for example, in police report. And, wow. and, and And that's when I, you know, I, what I used as an epigraph was a section of the autopsy that dealt with the scars on his face. Yep. I wanted that medical language. And the book kind of just tells the story behind it. But yeah, I'm going to suggest that to Phil. I didn't realize it was a painting in there, but if there is, there should be a book of poems in there beside him, too. Well, well they, was, they wanted to publish that thing. They yeah, just couldn't get their publisher to do it because it was poetry.
0: Well, I, I, got, I took a snapshot of it just for proof, because I was thinking of you. New York Hospital, ICU. He opened one eye, half-expecting Lefty's anxious face above him in the crease. But the smell of antiseptic? What that said to him was spring and it was a meal in an awkward chair asleep. A door latched heavily down the hall. The drapes were drawn. It looked like half the morning slipped away. He stared at his withered arms. Nice to be not alone. You had to know how to say. He'd never been much like Harvey, who'd quit as New York's coach when none of his players would go for a drink with him. Even Worsley politely declined. With Indianapolis, Doug had 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 three young friends from Newfoundland, ever willing, willing drinking companions. Good guys, but never ni- never quite good enough to get into the game. Harvey came down to the lobby one morning, tossing out sweaters for a team of their own. On the front, he had, he had Harvey's Hilton Hornets. On the back, the numbers of their rooms. That was the day the boys were driving home. Go home yourself, Emil. Go home to your wife and get some sleep in a proper bed. Emile the cat, the only coach who had had he who had he, he'd had who'd go home yourself, Emile, go home to your wife and get some sleep in a proper bed, Emile, the cat, the only coach he'd had who'd known the life of playing goal, that's why he'd kept a four day vigil all alone. Terry couldn't look away from his withered arms, where had everything gone, stupid, stupid. What had led to this? I started it. I finished it, he snarled at his questioners, the old blood rising at the end. Detectives like bloody reporters with their pens. Yes, he was the one. How dexterously a goalie hangs the chains of culpability around his neck. Open the door to the roaring darkness. Let him go first. Fear what was on the way? What could there be about fear he didn't know? Open the door. Infinity is just another fucking number. What were we? <laughs> Number
2: five, you got it. Woo! 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 What's up, number 75, here. That's an
0: awesome last
1: game. Head coach, holding Nara. <laughs> Assistant coaches, yeah, Harris Vitolych, and Maris yeah, aldon
0: when reading your, the, the stories of these old goalies, and really it's a book of storytelling rather than just a lot of poetry just tries to paint uh, an abstract picture where you, you're very distinctly telling stories with, with these poems. I can't help but feel a little sense of nostalgia, uh, whether intended or not, about the way that hockey goalies were and out there as warriors without masks and putting up with this lifestyle where now they're coddled millionaires with fantastic, lightweight, uh, impenetrable protection what do you think a, a guy like Terry would, would say to someone like Marty Brodeur who's now starting to catch uh, Terry's records and surpass Terry in some statistical categories but it's hard, it's hard to even compare their, their profession
2: yeah no it is I'll tell you what Terry would have done he would have been extremely supportive of him. He was always great with all the goalies, all the younger goalies. You know, he's got a—he a, has a bad reputation, you know, of being surly and, and not wanting to help anybody. It's just not—it's just not true. He was a guy who wouldn't talk about what was going on, but he was always there to help people. He was great with kids. You know, how he would have felt about the modern goalies? I, you know, they—they they are coddled. I think they're under even more pressure than the is used to be. They have backups, they have coaches and all this, but the pressure is unbelievable on these guys. In some ways, hockey players are more throwbacks to the old game than it seems to me the players of other sports like football and baseball are. When they're in the playoffs, sometimes I forget that it's 2010. You know, When I see those guys rocking back and forth oh, yeah. under skates, unshaven, when the anthem is being played, <laughs> oh, yeah. that's my moment. And I think that those guys... I don't think they could manage to to, to they are just under so much pressure. The guys back in the old days they had a lot of time off. They didn't practice as much. You know, it was just a, it was a, it, it was just a different kind of game. I, I don't know how Terry would have been with all that with all that gear. I mean, an angle goalie with that kind of gear, I don't think anybody ever would have got the
1: puck past him. <laughs>
0: Before I let you go, you mentioned about the the Ukrainian connection with Terry, and that uh, brings to mind two things. One, you were recently uh, presented with an award through a a Ukrainian uh, literary foundation, but also, um, you know, Ukraine closely associated with the Russian literary tradition, and I remember the closing bits of Dr. Zhivago, one of my favorite books of all time, and it talks about when uh, the the poet, uh, the fictional poet Dr. Zhivago was buried, and uh, Russia loves their poets and they love no poet more than this guy and everyone came and flooded his funeral even though his poems were banned and things like that and I alluded to this a little bit in my question earlier in the reading, like, um people love poetry but sometimes they're a little hard to find but you've been traveling across Canada and between the hockey and the poetry you've been clearly tugging on some uh on some emotions from people can you tell me a little flavor of what that's like
2: yeah well it's been it's been great I mean uh you know the the best part of the whole thing has been the people that I've met now I I, and the most rewarding thing is to to help you know, people would come that like poetry. People would come that like hockey. The people who like hockey and poetry, as you said, are rare. <laughs> you know, this is on you. These are these are the guys I really like to, to, to read to. But I really enjoy reaching the others. You know, and and uh, I, I have ran run into a certain amount of. Opposition, some people in the literary world see hockey and just it's that knee jerk yeah. response they 're not interested and, and on the other side of it, some of the hockey guys they see poetry and they 're not interested in <laughs> oh, yeah. that 's the reaction, but when I can get them in the room and when they start listening, you know I mean, it 's wonderful. I just wanted to say something about the ukrainians if yep. I can that 's the Shevchenko foundation you 're talking about uh, the, the, it 's the Kobzar prize, and uh, they they put on a wonderful evening for us in in uh, in Toronto it was it was an incredible experience and i i don't know if i mentioned this tonight when i was reading or not but m- more than once i heard the poems that we enjoy the most are the ones where you go into his mind where you where you you know you deal with his thoughts and what he had to say and i just I found that really reassuring uh, because you know you just don't know. I mean, you're you're talking about people of a different culture. Even to go into anybody's mind, to go into your brother's mind, you know, you just don't know how it's going to work. So that was excellent. And when we were in Edmonton just three, uh, earlier uh, on this tour, a woman came to me with the uh, the family tree, the Sawchuck family tree, oh. and she said, uh, "I was a little uneasy about this because I got an email a couple of days before, uh, and guy." who wrote the email said he was a cousin and they wanted to check sources you know and i thought oh what's going on here but she came to me and she had this family tree and she, what she said to me and this was one of the most wonderful things in the world she said we consider this book to be a real gift to our family and that made my day that just uh, that was that was a wonderful thing
0: oh that's got to be a joy for you yeah. as a poet yeah. so now after this project uh i gotta are you working on something new what's what, how do you follow something like yeah, this I, up? i'm contemplating
2: i mean i don't i won't write another book of uh, hockey poems uh i might do a book of non-fiction on hockey. i'm very interested in the old rinks mm-hmm. the old 16 rinks you know uh boston gardens and little details like the little strip of green linoleum that led down to the ice or so the fact they had to uh, stand up on the benches to change because when the showers are on the dressing room flooded and you had to get the gear put away quickly because the rats would get after it to get at the salt and the gear i mean i'm interested (laughs) in doing that you know yeah and and i but i also want to talk about all the other rinks that we grew up playing on the open air rinks you know there's i mean there's wonderful stories about all these rinks and they were they were all different they all had their own characters so i'm thinking of maybe doing something like that then i've got two or three other projects in mind but uh, i'm gonna i'm not gonna do anything i'm just gonna go back to newfoundland and get into my garden that's what i really want to do
0: well, hopefully they'll find a little time to do a little research about the old Denman Arena here in Vancouver, where the Vancouver Millionaires played when they won the Cup in 1915 yeah. or thereabouts. With Cyclone Taylor, who was one of the first superstars wow. in the hockey world, yeah. and this is almost forgotten history. There's nothing that remains of that because it burnt down in a fire, and there's nothing but a little tiny plaque yeah. about where all this grand hockey heritage, uh, you know, happened. And this is a city that's barely over 100 years old. <laughs> Best of luck on your future endeavors, and uh, I, for one, will be paying close attention to what you're doing. Thank you very much, Randall. Thanks very much. It's been a really great evening. Daddy Daddy needs
1: a drink to him and all his badness, to contemplate his gladness on the fullness of his cup. Daddy needs a drink to keep the wheels from rubbing compensate for nothing or nothing going on Daddy needs a drink so Mama fix one quick Pour it nice and strong with your cleaning outfit on Daddy needs a drink so Mama fix one quick Pour it nice and strong with your
0: This podcast all kind of came together with the help of Kitty Lewis, who's the proprietor or something of Brick Books, who published Nightwork. I encourage you to check out and order up yourself a copy of Nightwork. It's a, not only is it filled with these great poetic stories, but it's a beautifully produced little volume. The copy I have even came with a Randall Magg's hockey card. Yeah, you can't have that.
1: Daddy needs a dream to deal with baby screaming To him and all his demons or the TV set turned on And nothing on the radio Like the way my transmitter's on Put that drinking jacket on Enjoying the phone Daddy needs a drink So mom gets fun quick Pour it nice and strong With your clean outfit on Daddy needs a drink this one quick. Nice strong with
0: Check out the show notes for this for all the different links and so on. And you, well, you get into the summer, right? And you got all this great hockey going on. Memorial Cup just finished up, the World Championship. All these other different ancillary championships from here and there. The Allen Cup and all these different things. Now in this deep in the Stanley Cup playoffs. And you know, remember where all this kind of came from, right? It was tough prairie boys. Just, hmm, they weren't thinking about getting an education. This was just the thing that they knew how to do. So from wherever small town they were from, from coast to coast to coast, they kind of just came together and hopped on this crazy bus ride. And uh, took their lumps for it. So here's to you, all you old busted goalies. This episode of Postcards from Gravelly Beach featured music by the Black Tories and the drive by Truckers, as well as crowd noise from various hockey games during the 2010 Vancouver Olympics. Oh, is is that legal? Uh, and do I do thank you for coming along uh, on this journey with me and Randall Mags as he crisscrosses the country looking for people who care about hockey, poetry, and history. Well, he fa- he found one. For more of my podcast, please visit postcardsfromgravlybeach.com, chugalon.com, canucksoutsider.com, won't get you anywhere right now, or go to uncleweed.net and you'll find all sorts of, well, it's like a scavenger hunt. A scavenger hunt in which you dig deep and find exactly what you wanted. My name's Dave, by the way, and I encourage you to keep your stick on the ice and your head in the clouds.